So 2024 begins with Paula Venels handing back her CBE, who she, the head of the post office, and clearly you haven't been watching the ITV documentaries that have totally transformed the politics behind this absolute scandal. So questions remain. Um, Ed Davey, Men, are the other ministers who just gummed this problem and let it drag on for the best part of six, seven years. What's the point? What's the point in having ministers who cannot actually look at the probability of 900 postmasters and mistresses lying and thieving tens of thousands of pounds in broad daylight? What's the probability of that happening set against what's the probability that the system is wrong? If we haven't got ministers who can make those judgment calls and be brave enough to say there's a big problem, then what have we got? And many people might answer the mess we're in today. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to the first Leslie Riddick podcast of 2024. And uh, I hope all of you had a, a smashing break. Uh, how was yours, Leslie? Anything wild, exciting, you know? <laughs> well, I did try to go in for a duke. I was ready for it. All right. Um, was, I was up with a pal uh, <clears throat> in Easter Ross. Had actually put the old, managed to sort of push himself into the old wetsuit thing. And uh, we went looking for the posse. And because she'd lost her mobile phone, my God, do we ever depend on these things? We'd lost the posse, basically. So they could have been in Port Mahomet. They could have been in Shandwick Bay. So we raced around looking for other similarly clad, mostly women, to kind of have the aforementioned duke. And my God, you know, the last time I was out, it was about 10 degrees and mm. it was, you know, cold. But the water is now five degrees. So I was kind of, you know, I got <clears throat> I got all the wee neoprene booties and all that kind of thing. But still, the prospect of hurling yourself <laughs> into water yeah. when it's yeah. this cold, it's just sort of you need to be buoyed up by a bunch of people that you cannot basically let down. You know, you have to be pulled in by the herd, essentially, you know, which is why I always quite like these things, because there is nothing that would make me do that on my own. Um, and unfortunately, we never caught up with them. So actually, all zipped up and perfectly dry, we we went back, but had a lovely time actually up north. It was grand. How about yourself? Well, it was it was absolutely excellent. Uh, one of the highlights, of course, was because the, uh, the kids um, love Home Alone. So oh, it was on 400 times, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, so we decided to watch it. And uh, absolutely terrific movie. And Willy, we went to see Wonka. Not Willy Wonka, we went to see Wonka as well. But Home Alone leads me in quite nicely because that's a tremendously enjoyable film about a, a young person who's left uh, yeah. alone at Christmas. And lo and behold, our, our esteemed leader, Rishi Sunak, and I won't get into the the heightism things because I mean that's 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 a cheap shot. Says the man <laughs> says the man who's probably shorter than Rishi Sunak. Um, but yes, about a small person left alone in Number Ten Downing Street. That somebody somewhere in his public relations department thought this is a this is wizard. This is going to show the the uh, the absolutely human side of Rishi and what a great guy he is and what an embarrassment it actually was. Yeah, can I just say that Pat is available for voiceover work if anybody's wanting it. You know. <laughs> Yes. No, that was that was uh, very, very well embodied. Yeah, I mean, pr people probably don't even remember this now, you know, but I mean, it, this was a column I wrote just just in, you know, after Christmas where the, the Rishi Sunak had done his video Christmas message with this kind of 
I mean, I think it was a cross between Home Alone and Love, actually, or something. But All he right. was he was sitting at a Downing Street desk with pencil in hand and asks tremendously theatrically in, in an accent I can't do, but you could. Am I the only one here? You know, and then sort of basically it's you're supposed to believe he then goes, Jings, I could do almost anything I want. And then, you know, this this kind of idea of Rishi, you know, running amok, he basically sets some stacked cans of Coke up and bowls a cricket ball against them. Yeah, you know, yeah. whips the wee chocolates off the Christmas tree as if a guy that thin actually ever eats any, anything as, as kind of off beam as chocolate. Then apparently you 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 have to be told this bit pours maple syrup on spaghetti far out uh, man you know yeah. um and sort of he picks up Larry the cat I mean I've got three cats these guys you know they know when someone's a wrong and you know what I mean <laughs> so basically Rishi's trying to kiss Larry the cat and Larry's cringing away from him it's just unbelievable then the phone goes and Rishi yeah. tells the caller and you have to replay this four times before you actually make out the word Harry. It's a wrong number. Now, at the level of this is a, to me, this is kind of interesting because this mm. is so wrong. You know, I mean, for a Scottish audience, <clears throat> first of all, you can't quite get his accent. Secondly, you're not switched on to the idea that there's a thing about Harry. You know, Harry and Meghan were left off the royal Christmas invite list. Did you know that? No idea, but till till I read your column. Right. Um, you know, which is kind of you, you, you ha all these assumptions are built in so that, OK, that's fair enough. Obviously, nothing that Rishi Sunak does is aimed at the likes of us. But if you were taking a bowling analogy, this one just goes right past our pitch. You know, there's no reference in it and it all hangs that the funny. If there's anything funny about that, that's the bit that, you know, is meant to kind of reach out. And in the end, you, you kind of got to wonder if he was this was actually a sort of cunning uh, plan in that you you know this video performance was so totally lacking in any kind of charisma that you might as voters surmise that this kind of lameness could not possibly have engineered something as evil and callous as the VIP fast lane the dodgy yeah. contracts you know it must have been Boris that did it and this guy this boy scout of a chancellor you know he just got dragged along against his own better judgment if that had been the motive I I, I say in the column i might have i might have given it a grudging one out of ten for sheer gall but it wasn't this is obviously sunak's pitch is just to keep trying to impress everyone as a kind of wholesome hard-working straight-up guy with a mildly wacky sort of waitrose sorry anybody who shops there mm. sense of humor and just no but it gives you the sort of sense of where we are with all of this because really you know, it's kind of it, it feels like it's the last days of the Raj when you've got this desperate attempts to humanize someone who's about to lose power. And, you know, it, it reminded me so immediately of that sort of <clears throat> Gordon Brown's rictus grin mm -hmm. that he developed, you know, oh, when, God, during yeah. the 2010 general election that um, or, or and in fact, then do, does anyone remember the previous um, ad agency had come up with not flash, just Gordon? Um, yeah, the, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, let that one settle. Let, let my stomach settle for a moment <laughs> after that. Whoever, whoever, whatever. Again, back to the geniuses that operate in the background. You know, they're supposed to be really brilliant media and communications people. They must have all fled with Tony Blair when they came up with that one. Was that Sachi and Sachi though that 
that that was a Saatchi and Saatchi idea. They're not Flash, but Gordon, just Gordon won. And that was that was actually for the 2007 general election. He didn't actually have the courage to call. Yeah. He took over yeah. from, from, from Tony Blair and then thought, well, maybe we'll just brazen this one out. So anyway, the point, I suppose, is really <clears throat> that Rishi, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, yeah. two pretty underwhelming men who are basically technocrats and are sort of essentially card shuffling managers when Britain needs bold leadership. Every front we're on, you know, the, the business as usual just isn't doing it, whether it's the climate crisis, green transition, housing crisis, Brexit related skills shortage, austerity, you know, in fact, decline in life expectancy that we're still in. Mm -hmm. you know, these are not things that just tiny little incremental fiddling at the corner stuff is ever going to change. And I have to say in that I was kind of pining somewhat for another Tom Johnson. I mean, I bored everyone with Tom Johnson. Oh, no, no, I'm never bored of Tom Johnson. <laughs> but, you know, he, he being he being the Labour um, Secretary of State and during the war, who basically brought electricity to the highlands uh, via a, a network of hydro dams by forcing reluctant landowners to hand over the land using the war. I mean, that's if, if there's ever a definition of, of, a, of a good crisis, Tom Johnson's handling of the of the war in Scotland was it. Um, and he actually when I when I looked into it, he'd, he'd also skillfully deployed the threat of a nationalist backlash <laughs> to negotiate <laughs> the higher than average Scottish public spending from, you know, from London, essentially, that has contributed to the Barnet formula. So, I mean, that was some guy. Uh, council house, house building continued during the war years in Scotland, but nowhere else in the UK. And, and then that presumption of higher Scottish public spending crystallised into the Barnet formula. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a sort of tremendous legacy. Um, and he was also tremendously smart. Uh, he, he'd set up general hospitals to cope with wartime bombing. At that point, there wasn't that kind of thing. Um, and that became a forerunner of the NHS. Uh, what else? He he when he was doing the the the, the setting up of the hydro system in Scotland, um, he'd he'd smartly see, foreseen that he would get ob objections all the way from all the Tories who were basically the previous secretaries of state from other administrations. So he he drove a very hard bargain with Churchill, who wanted Churchill wanted him to be the Scottish secretary in a wartime cabinet. Um, by insisting that all living former secretaries of state advise him in a council of state. And that basically got all the troublemakers in the tent yeah. so that all the kind of market, you know, the sort of interventions he was going to make in the market, the radical interventions he was about to make would would essentially have to be okayed by this, you know, council of state. And he would then have neutralized the opposition, which is precisely what he did. Yeah. So, do we have someone? That's exactly the question I was going to ask, yes. What's I mean, Tom Johnson I, would need him now? I know, exactly. I mean, I, I don't know that we do at all in Scotland, certainly not in Britain. Um, but that's the kind of level of something we need at this point. And that, to me, that's the challenge that Hamza Yusuf has to measure up to. Um, not just doing a bit better than Anis or a bit better than you know, Rishi Sunak, which isn't hard. It really does need something visionary. And I've got to be honest and say, I don't think we got that from the speech about the whatever it was, you know, industrial department yeah, or whatever yeah, it was yeah, yesterday was, or the day before. Yeah, that was 
pretty pretty underwhelming. The Ministry for Industrial Policy. And I mean, it, 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 you know, it, 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 I did like the aspect of it. It was going to be, well, it's the usual SNP stakeholders, but he did say, and the trade unions, so, yeah. Um, but again, statutory footing, engaged directly, it's going to be with all ministers, etc. But it didn't exactly set the heather on fire. And because it, because it, the, 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 the thing it was what to say is that, that it's the paradox, though, that what you had was a, a definitively Scottish left of centre progressive, if you want to use this terminology, and Tom Johnson, who was willing to make radical decisions and engage in radical reform and saw clearly what he had to do and was able to play that political game to do it. Yeah, and, and actually keeps a bit within the UK. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, I hope nobody needs any telling. Both of us are supporters of independence. But that guy changed lives completely in Scotland as part of Britain. Yeah. You know, so it, that's what the challenge is. And OK, a ministry of what is it? What was it again? Industrial, Industrial policy. Under, I mean, I don't know. You know, you could arguably say you could actually have that department now if you wanted. Although well, I think a, a lot yes. of people feel that there's kind of quite a lot of departments already. But to my mind, what <clears throat> the problem with that is, it's a bit like saying after after independence, we'll have a chair. Yeah. And you think, hmm. Isn't there going to be more furniture than that? I mean, kind of like this is one part of what a government would look like. And it, 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 on its own, it looks a little bit sad. You know, it's a bit like, of course, there'll be fine. There'll be a Ministry of Industrial Development. And it's so far over the cusp. First of all, you could be doing half of that now. Um, mm-hmm. And and secondly, where's the rest of the table and the other chairs and the stuff on the table? And, you know, it just to me, it just kind of. You can't go go in, I think, very easily and say, here's one little corner. It's like a jigsaw, you know, sort of saying, here's let's do the bits around the edge first. <laughs> Actually, that is how you do, do a jigsaw right now. Yes, but, you know, it's like yeah. um, if, if you didn't, if the rest of the box didn't have all the bits in it, enticing you into the kind of hopeless belief that you would actually finish it. And there would be something resembling a picture in 400 years when everyone in the, in the family's helped you. I don't think you'd keep going if you just had a wee corner, mm-hmm. you know. It's not enough to have a wee corner. No, I mean because it was. It, I was reading uh, about the the, the Sarber speech, and, it, and, and I read beyond the national on this, because he's talking about resetting devolution and getting back devolution back to its fundamental principles. I mean, I'm not absolutely sure what he actually meant by that. And he says devolution was always meant to be about Scottish solutions to Scottish problems. Yeah, and it's it, that, that's just. I, I really don't understand it. That's just verbiage as far as I'm concerned. But the, the next element, which kind of goes back to Tom Johnson, but the point you made about where is Tom Johnson now? We need him. And there's there's no one. I mean, the next when on the next Labour government, who will be the Secretary of State for Scotland? Didn't hold your breath, Ian Murray. I don't think it's you. Um, the, the, would that be that person who would engage in that 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 kind of radicalism and that kind of standing up for Scotland that that Tom Johnson did because Savar is saying that uh, it's the Scottish electorate will not just be spectators they will be absolutely pivotal to the the outcome of the of the next general election and um, which then leads us into a point is how pivotal uh, how pivotal has Scottish uh, votes actually been since 1945 well only four times out of the 21 have Scottish votes actually altered the the UK general election in any way, shape, or form. 
And that will be the line they will be putting in order to get this change, what this change is, we, we know not what now, because there seems to be a roadblock in every single policy that, uh, that, that Starmer espoused in terms of his principles. He was elected leader of the Labour Party, right up to the fact now of uh, this, uh, the, the 20-odd billion pounds that were going to be spent on the green transition, the green revolution, that, that seems to, to have vanished into the ether as well. So it's Yves Sarva said there's going to be a seat at the table, but a seat at the table about what? To do what? This this change, change, change. And at every available opportunity, we actually examine what this change would involve. It wouldn't be uh, getting rid of uh, the 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 two child uh, the two child. Uh, a limit. It, it wouldn't be getting rid of the bedroom tax. It would. It, it would be. Let's look at the NHS, West Streeting, which we're going to be talking about in a moment. West Streeting seems to be he's going to open the door to privatisation, and then we get to foreign policy. Because Sarwar made this speech in Rutherglen, and Michael Shanks, who said when he was elected, he was going to be his own man. He was going to stand up for what he believed in, despite what the, the whips might say, when it's Labour Party policy in Scotland to call for an immediate ceasefire, he abstained on the immediate ceasefire uh, amendment in Parliament. So in terms of foreign policy, where, where, where did they stand as well? So there is no Tom Johnson, and we are not spectators in this next election. If we do not vote SNP, and hold our noses for some of us to do so, to ensure a significant number of SNP MPs get into Westminster, you've had your lot. That is it. We will be relegated to the back seat, and I'll be terribly intrigued to see how a future Labour government will actually handle Scotland in terms of comparison to, say, Wales, in terms of funding, in terms of further devolution, etc. Yeah, well, there's a couple, couple of thoughts. I mean, I listened to Keir Starmer's speech. I can't remember when it was. It's all a bit of a blur. Mm. Um, and I mean, I've got to say there was there was one bit in it that sort of stuck with me a bit. Um, I'm wondering if I can kind of find it now in all my wee notes and everything. But um, it was when he was kind of talking about uh, the he was talking about the um, exhausting politics of division. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, there was, you know, there's, he he put a bit of effort in. Well, somebody put a bit of effort into it. Um, you know, he's. He, it's. I've, I've got to say though, before I get anywhere, in case anyone thinks, are you going from in soft girl? It's just like this sentence, right? I've hated the futility of opposition, the powerlessness, and yes, the pain that comes from watching the Tories drive the country I love onto the rocks of decline. Now it's like nobody speaks like that. No. You know what I mean? And the point above all is he doesn't speak like that. No. You know, Boris Johnson actually doesn't even speak like that. Um, Boris does have a very stylized thing. But, you know, I imagine he speaks to his children in the in the manner of a sort of classics Don from from Oxford or something. <laughs> he is consistently pompous. Whereas this kind of, you know, and yes, the pain. I mean, pain, Keir Starmer, pain. I don't know. Really? Um, and this, you know, somebody said to him, you you need to emote, girl, you know, and uh, so he's gone, the country I love, right, because there's questions about Labour's patriotism after yeah. the wake of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, you can actually bullshit bingo every sentence <laughs> here and just give it, you know, that's come from there, that's come from there, uh, you know, 
And then his kind of, you know, this neat thing that they've done where they've got the, the politics of divide and decline, you know, the double D's, a bit of alliteration. It's going to look good on the page with a new project of hope. Right. Fine. So he's got great divide and decline. Then he can do the Tories because they are dividing people with all their cultural stuff, you know, so that everybody gets. In fact, he could have had a triple one. Here we go. This is free care. Divide, decline and distract. OK, uh, but there you are. Yeah. The, the Tories do do that. They divide everyone by distracting them with these kind of, you know, mm -hmm. arguments about nothing while the whole country just nosedives down into, you know, end, the endless decline that people need, seem to have accepted as normal. And happily, you can fling in the SNP and Plaid as well because yeah. we're divisive, you know. So and of course, the trouble with that is you finally get to a sentence. I mean, you can listen to it. And you go, yeah, yeah. I mean, you are like a total wooden top, you know, in that I don't believe this is really coming from you. I don't care if you've got your sleeves rolled up to now, whoop, whoop, your blooming elbow. I mean, <laughs> none of it is making me feel that you are anything other than the most mannered, stylized guy I've almost ever seen speaking. Um, and that take some doing uh, but he talked as well about um, an overhaul of government yada yada and, and kind of no more denigration of public servants okay fair enough and he talked actually in this this phrase might he he elaborated on this one about the exhaustion that comes from the kind of division that the Tories have created and I thought you know there's something there in that I feel this for people for independent supporters who mm -hmm. do feel exhausted actually it's it, it is exhausting trying to have a political perspective. I'm not saying that this is a reason to dump it, by the way. I'm just acknowledging it's just the word exhaustion, you know, because basically we've been rolling a ball up a hill for, well, many people have been pro-independence their entire lives and out there and, and campaigning for that principally as a thing. But let's just say since 2013 in the campaign in earnest, we've been at this for 10 years thinking something was imminently happening and the level of concentration and commitment and focus. I mean, I try to remember the days when I wrote columns, you know, little kind of chin tickling columns about, uh, you know, the difficulty of, I don't know, you know, I can't even sum up an example now because everything is about heavy constitutional yeah. lifting and you feel sort of guilty if you're not on it. You Absolutely. feel you have to stay connected. I personally feel that, I have to try to kind of keep people's energy up and sort of constantly try to keep people roused, you know, just to keep this thing going, which which happily, when you find that coming back towards you, it really does remind you that, we, you know, we have just not gone away. It's only that the SNP as a vehicle and the imminence of an independence moment has changed in people's, well, expectations. And it it is exhausting actually, and it might be just worth time noting how much energy people are having to put into something because that energy should be put in, be being put into re restoring and transforming this country. Yes. The energy we are wasting having to talk about these people who are not elected by us, you know, over the peace, over the peace of Scotland, of, of issues that are not things that we're even arguing about anymore of um, objectives that are not ours, of comparisons with countries that we don't particularly compare ourselves with. All of this is a total waste of time. And yet it's like, 
you have to have this this twin track mind where you know you have to keep some of your energy i think folks for the country we are and can be which is of 5 million people not 66 which is not obsessed with beating france at stuff which is not worried particularly about being part of a special relationship with america which doesn't even want to give a trade deal to its special partners which is not you know anxious about being over overrun those words i'm sure have come from you mm-hmm. know one of the uh, the, the Tory titans uh, by migration. We need migrants. Um, you know, we, we are this constellation of things here in Scotland, and we must keep that person, those hopes, that connection, that vision running, and that takes energy, whilst we have to talk and operate in a theatre that is basically quite different, but we have to be able to be bilingual politically. And this Every time there's a general election, and yes, I have just had a a cup of coffee. Um, (laughs) Every time there's an election, this sort of bifurcation of the brain becomes worse because you're having to sort of essentially go through the paces of a general election that is like a gigantic piece of dad dancing. It's kind of dancing, but kind of so behind the curve. And here we are having to waste our time analysing speeches that are for you know that are grandstanding for Surrey. That's all yeah. this is about. And then a man who has to be careful not to you know get too far from the peace and a Sarwar, um, who who essentially is having to do the same thing. And that's all it's about. And the tragedy of it is though, that you know, but behind a lot of independent supporters, you know, I think we'll just never vote anything but SNP and we'll not vote Labour again. But you know, coming back to the days, I was going to call them the good old days, but the days before 2013, a lot of politics in the whole of Britain, Scotland included, was simply that after some people, you know, one party had been in for long enough, you gave the other chaps a go. And so there will be people who think the SNP has been in for too long and it's tired stuff. We need to give the other chaps a go. And I use chaps in there, you know, and it's sort of, just general sense. Yeah. And that's the difficulty because you can come out that people will, I think, agree and say, yep, we see all the stuff they're rowing back on. We hear all the non-committal to this, that and the next thing, but they're better than the Tories and it's time to give the other chaps a go. And that argument will be hard to gainsay unless you've got such a really clear, strong vision for Scotland that it's kind of dazzling. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a hard road to plow because the momentum is with, uh, dare I use that word in terms of Labour these days, momentum, the momentum is with the Labour Party. I mean, this is like 18, 20 odd percent percent leads. And uh, I, saw, I, say, uh, I saw Sunak in comparison to his... Uh, his uh, Home Alone and Love Actually antics being interviewed by Laura Koonsberg, who who had the bit between her teeth. You're and watching it again. Yeah, I'm watching it again. Yeah. I, yes, I know. And uh, she had the bit between her teeth and she went at him about uh, his... Uh, the, the 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 leaked papers concerning whether he was for or against the Rwanda in terms of its uh, efficacy and in terms of its its finance etc. And he kept he kept referring his mantra was I I hope you're going to ask Keir Starmer about this I hope you're going to ask Keir Starmer about this you hope you go I mean that was it throughout 
And uh, but he he get he actually was he was all over the place and he was incredibly inarticulate. And he started off and which I thought was a rather odd one by turning around and saying, I haven't seen these uh, documents to which you're referring, Laura. To which my point, he then gave a very coherent answer, I thought, which was, I was Chancellor of the Exchequer. It was my responsibility to actually be, you know, the doubting Thomas and ask about uh, the financial aspects of all that and cast doubt on it. And actually, and I thought, start off with that. Don't start off with saying you haven't seen what you're going to be talking about, mate. So he, he, he undermined himself there. But it's, it is that thing. It's, it's two bald men fighting over a comb. And I'm I'm follically challenged, <laughs> and so that that's what it was about, and yeah. it is that thing. And but Sarbar is going to push, and the Labour Party will push this line and saying that was the disappointment with the BBC when the reporter on reporting Scotland said Scotland has been crucial in general elections, you know, and then they try to backtrack and say, well, it wasn't just about who came first, it was about majorities, etc. But again, that is the the line that Sarbar will put. Don't be a spectator, join in. Vote for us, get rid of the tired Tories, and then they'll try and carry that over. Yeah. But it kind of leads us into, sorry, just a quick yeah, one, but it kind of leads okay. us into that thing that uh, with Richard Wynne-Jones, which was mm-hmm. the that people may have listened to, and if you haven't, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it, and you wrote about it as well, that differentiation that took place in Welsh Labour, who have, have successfully become nationalists with a small n, embraced Welshness, and I managed successfully to differentiate themselves from UK Labour. Whether that will continue post a Labour victory will be very, very interesting. And Sarwar has not managed to do that, nor does there seem to be any desire to do so. Yeah, um, I, I mean, actually, the, the the bit just the bit that sort of w- will actually rile people, I think, in Wales <clears throat> and Scotland, if they even listen to Keir Starmer's speech. But by gum, you're actually going to hear this over and over and over again now for the next year, because this is the approach to Scotland. He he said populism and nationalism yeah, yep. drive disillusion with West, Westminster. Populism and nationalism drive disillusion with Westminster. Yeah. I mean, th- this is extraordinary. I must say I tweeted something saying, no, Westminster drives disillusion with yeah. Westminster. And the idea that there's going to be some national renewal with all the problems that we've, you know, <laughs> we've repeated in a in a privatised state, which I still think is the one that, you know, I just wish people would tackle. But that's going to be the shtick, basically, that we've now thrown it in populism, the Brexit, you know, slogans on the side of a bus and nationalism. You know, the nationalists basically having a, an empty slogan and kind of it's all empty slogans and, you know, whatever is driving. I mean, you would wonder how either, even if you were to accept his idea, how either of them get a foothold um, if Westminster, you know, was the pulsing centre <laughs> of renewal that, you, you know, that, the, that he implies. But um, but that's what they're going to do, basically. So that's really is really annoying because it kind of treats, essentially it's treating every listener to this podcast, apart from George Fawkes, Happy New Year, um, <laughs> It's treating everybody who has voted SNP as the same as anyone who fell for the Brexit slogan on the side of a bus, as basically stupid cattle, you know, people who are just being led by some emotional something or other um, and who just don't seem to get that the only route is to just waste your life trying to change stuff in an archaic environment that essentially does not want to be changed. So, that will be the shtick. And 
as as you said, the 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 conversation we had with with Prof Richard Wynne Jones was I found just jaw dropping. And actually, yeah. thanks to the people who emailed in to say, by gum, that was some uh, podcast. If you haven't listened to it and you just get them in and think, oh, this looks a bit heavy, <laughs> just get into it. He's such, and also just even listening to his accent, it's, it's beautiful. He's a Welsh speaker. And actually, you can hear that in the back of of, of someone mm-hmm. even speaking English um, when when they're the real deal. But yes, the 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 kind of things that he was talking about are something that's they're so important uh, to know about, and we just didn't. That basically, uh, in in 1999, uh, Plaid Cymru in Wales. Uh, got a higher proportion of the seats than the SNP in Scotland in that first uh, devolved election. And that scared the bejesus out of of Labour um, in Wales. What then helped them was that Tony Blair had basically tried to foist, I remember all this actually, had foisted on uh, Labour in Wales um, a guy called Alan Michael, who was going Mm -hmm. to be the first minister, when actually the the leader that was incredibly popular there was Rodri Morgan, um, who I actually was on a British Council visit with, and what a topper of a guy he was! Another Welsh speaker, um, the head of the head of 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 of, of Labour in Wales, and uh, one of the things that Richard Wynne Jones said is that the the big division in Wales is is cultural, yeah, and it is about the Welsh language, so that basically having someone like Rodri Morgan who was Socialist, um, Welsh Welsh language speaker, yeah, Tony Blair didn't like that guy. And the fact that the centre, London, dislikes their guy and, and has even machinated sufficiently to stick somebody in that just didn't do the business and was subsequently replaced by Rodri Morgan, um, that helped define Labour in Wales as kind of different because they'd already had a punch up essentially with London um, and they... Uh, learning that lesson from the drop, well, it wasn't a drubbing. They won in the 1999 election, but by gum, nobody expected Plaid to be snapping at their heels. They won the the, the Ronda Valley seat. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought that anybody but Labour would ever collect the, the seats in the valleys, and it took until until 2007 before that kind of tidal change really happened in Scotland. So before, you know, long before, not long, okay, just seven or eight years actually, but. You know, before we had that sort of tidal change that made people think, my God, that's a bit of a change. That had already happened in, in Wales and Labour had the wit to basically, uh, you know, in, in the words of of, uh, of uh, Richard Wynne-Jones, basically um, pl- uh, Welsh Labour draped themselves in the Red Dragon and became a small end nationalist party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said they played regional politics very well. They stood up for their part of the state against the centre, whether it was the Tories or Labour in power in London. And uh, <clears throat> it, Richard actually says that that um, you know that the, the the problem for Scotland was that Scotland became a new Labour fiefdom, thanks to the presence of prominent Scots at the heart of the Blair Brown project, and that made it hard to impossible for Scottish Labour to differentiate itself yeah. from London. That difficulty was compounded by Better Together in 2014. And so Richard basically said in the first decade of devolution, Labour in Scotland decided to become the tribunes of London. And that was a huge political error. Welsh Labour were very conscious of the hole that Scottish Labour had dug for itself. 
and later by allying with the the Tories against the SNP, another centre-left party, and has since been determined not to alienate its independent supporting members. So what what that's meant is that basically the Welsh have had just, I'm not suggesting it's a land of milk and honey, and neither is Richard-Wynne-Jones. If you just had a look at the telly for a whole load of reasons, there's been so many catastrophic problems for the Welsh just in trains, just say trains to a Welsh person and, you know, uh, they do their dinger. But he's making the point that, you know, astonishing things have happened. I mean, basically, the Welsh Labour government, current Welsh Labour government, um, has plied Cymru advisers. That's the way they've done a coalition, not the way it's happened here with ministers from the Greens in, mm-hmm. but actually all the ministers are Labour, but the advisers are plied. Now, that seems to have you know, that seems to have worked reasonably well. Uh, they also set up a constitutional commission, um, which, you know, everyone thinks, OK, that's maybe a bit boring. But that was kind of an anticipation of the fact that, that devolution is now hitting its 25th birthday for all of us. So this independent commission that was set up um, basically concluded that the status quo didn't work and unwind, unwinding de- devolution, as in just going you know back to before devolution that didn't work and the only three alternative futures were entrenching devolution properly so the tories couldn't nick it federalism brackets these are my brackets it's never going to happen or <laughs> independence now just get that people a welsh labor government allowed an independent commission to genuinely explore all the alternatives and it came up with three options one of which was independence as the, as the thing most likely to improve life in Wales. Another outcome of that was that the Senate set up a future generations commissioner, and it means that every big decision that's taken has to be proofed as to how it will affect, you know, future generations. And that in itself has been a pretty radical step. I'd suggest that a future generations commissioner in Scotland would look at land reform proposals and decide they are so puny as not to be worth the name of it because they don't guarantee uh, equal access to this country for the next generation of Scott. But we've not done anything like that. And actually, um, the, the final recommendations of this Welsh Constitutional Commission are coming out on January the 18th. So in another nine days, folks, and that, who knows what that commission will come up with, but, you know, there'll be more surprises there. We'll pick it up when it does happen. Yeah. What's happened in Scotland? Nothing. Yeah. And that's, you know, this is my point. We've had 25 years of Holyrood. Um, I know a lot of independent supporters sort of think, what's the point in trying to tinker with this car? We're going to sell it in a month. And a lot of folk on the other side of the political divide don't want to open up the bonnet because they're going to discover that they actually need a new car. Um, and for that reason, none of us are touching uh, a Scottish Parliament that is presiding over one of the most centralised countries in the developed world, that's Scotland. That, and that does not fulfil what was, what was promised for devolution, which was that it would dramatically change the nature of democracy in Scotland. So, I mean, I've got a a few meetings and stuff with people trying to see if we can put something together for one of the anniversaries. They're all around June and May and July, actually, um, to just say, basically, is 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 democracy in Scotland strong enough? What do we need to do? 
I mean, it's what the thing you were you're saying there about about centralisation struck struck a major chord with me there because the while we'll have West Streeting on one hand saying the NHS in a sad state of affairs needs to improve, it don't have to get used to the fact that money is tight and the NHS uses every winter crisis and it's used for more cash. Paul Sweeney up here, I think. M- Labour MSV, we completely disagree with everything that's being said there. But again, his solution to the issues with NHS is greater centralisation, which just seems to be the the answer to everything. Again, in terms of local government, let's have massive local government uh, areas. As you said, the Highlands and Ireland is bigger than uh, council areas, bigger than Belgium, which struck struck a major chord with me. We've got the the most centralised local government in in Europe and yet the the solution that uh, Paul Sweeney's come up with and at least he's trying to come up with a solution that just doesn't involve words is actually looking at more centralisation by I believe reducing the number of of health boards. Yeah um, he he was on Good Morning Scotland and and I imagine I mean you know I've got got a lot of time for Paul Sweeney actually and you know, that, that's why this seems so disappointing. And if we're going back to, to old Tom Johnson from the Labour Party, um, he started life as a councillor in Kirk and Tillich and, and did all sorts of things that create, you know, made Kirk and Tillich municipality, uh, a tiny little council, one of the most go ahead councils in, mm-hmm. in Britain, actually, at the time. Um, but still, here we are. And it just sounds like the direction of travel now is just more of the same, which is, this presumption, this false presumption that big is beautiful, that just, you know, wh- why bother having 18 health boards, um, asks Paul. I mean, really, why bother having 32 councils? Why bother? Actually, why don't we just have one massive GP service in the middle of Fife? Why bother yes. having more than one of anything? Um, and the question really needs to be asked because people, I mean, me asking that question may well in the political climate that we have uh, prompt a lot of people to think that is a good point. Why do we have all these different things? <laughs> and you've got to sort of say, well, it's a hard one to argue when you've so lost the idea of local power that you don't miss it. And that's where we are now in Scotland. We don't expect to have anything sorted out locally. You thole the problems that arise from that. You imagine it would just be far too expensive to do anything differently. You don't know that every other country around us has infinitely more local councils than us. And I feel like like I repeat this so often that I'm sick of hearing myself going on about it. And yet there'll always be someone who goes, really? And you think, geez, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing is, how is it that every well-functioning democracy and seriously, you can go beyond the Nordics to all the, the, the countries that are just quietly doing away quite well, Austria, any of these other ones, they've all got local councils of about 10,000. Scotland has 175,000 people in each local area. And what that means is if you're listening, and that means you probably, again, dot accepted, um, you know, you're probably a bit of an activist. You're probably a bit concerned about your local environment. You are being flared off out of the democratic system, you get to vote. That's your lot. Yes. And actually, when I was up north, I even heard the terrible story of a woman who was a real activist in 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 her um, in her locality. Uh, there, there was a vacancy on the council. She stood for the council. She has got dogs abuse simply for being a councillor because 
councils the size of, of Highland, which it's minus the islands is bigger than Belgium, um, is just pejorative. You know, people have come to hate the council because it's not there. It's an essentially it's not an easy target <clears throat> because it's a remote absent target. The only people that you can you can vent on is the councillor that's decided to, you know, stand in your area. And um, she's standing down now. A year's been enough. So there's something so wrong about all of this. And yet from that little remark that was made, which dominated the headlines, that uh, Paul Sweeney suggests that I think it's 18 health boards over the piece we have in Scotland should come down to three. Now, I mean, I, I would love to know from people listening. And I mean, again, <laughs> we did this with the Curriculum for Excellence. And thank you all for you know the, the feedback there was on that. Um, I just don't know that this is the biggest problem. I did actually have a wee shift at other countries and how they organise. And actually, to be fair, quite a number of countries like, for example, um, Estonia, uh, Paul Sweeney's rationale, particularly for wanting to move to three health boards, was uh, problems of communication between uh, between mm -hmm. different health boards and IT problems. I mean, it yeah. seemed to be a bit non-specific. Now, I'll absolutely tell you that there are communication problems in Scottish hospitals <laughs> and so on, because I, I find myself back having stupidly after a successful kidney biopsy. And despite listening to them and not mm -hmm. picking up anything so much as a bag of messages for like 10 days, was in a garden centre <clears throat> just to get a wee kind of poncetti or something to take to a friend, saw some small trees for sale and a different bit of my brain clicked in completely. And I thought, wow, and went over, picked all these trees up, <laughs> put, them on, put them on a trolley, dragged the blooming trolley through gravel uphill. A guy said, would you like some help? No, I'm fine. Dragged it all up, took them, you know, carried them into the car, carried them into the garden. It was only afterwards I thought, oh, no. And then, of course, had this niggling pain that started mm -hmm. in my back. So ended up because they told you if that happens, just come straight back to the ward. Don't even go to A&E, just come right back here. So on, I spent Boxing Day in the hospital in Kirkcaldy again and <laughs> um, just sat there for four hours, actually, because there wasn't the capacity to do a scan or anything like that. And, it, you know, it wasn't even busy. There was nobody there, actually. It just was complete. It was miscommunication. I mean, I'd phoned up with this is the problem. I don't think the scanning machine was even on. If it was, it's quite possible. And I'm not this is not essentially you're so you so scary to criticize anyone in the NHS in Scotland, yeah. because on the other hand, people were just lovely and it's a you know difficult job and everything. But just organizationally, you thought that's kind of been a bit of a waste of everybody's effort there. Um, finally, I did go in um, and did get, you know, the scan, which again proved that everything's fine. Now, when I was in, um, the number of times a nurse had to come and get a physical piece of paper and start asking me all the details of what I'm allergic to and what I have and haven't had, I'm on the system. I'm hyper on the system. Mm -hmm. I've had a blood test in Fife every month for 10 years. You know, there's there's nothing about about me as an as an organism that is not known not to on, this health yeah. board. And actually, in that hospital, I'd already been in the previous week. 
because I was in for a biopsy that had to be postponed because my blood pressure was too high. We went through all this, but it stayed on a piece of paper. And so the lassie that was doing the piece of paper the second time, I said, does this not blooming break your heart? That You know, I said, I was in here a, a week ago. Should this not all be online somehow? And she kind of sighed and said, yeah, in, in Edinburgh it is, but not in Fife. Okay. Now, what do I know? But the level of kind of, you know, you, you it's like they might as well have a quill in their hands. And now I'm sitting with a thing in my hand at the moment. And this came through the post yesterday, a discharge document. Um, it sort of describes, you know, what happened that I turned up for this. Then there was a problem with that. Um, and it it, it, it ends. Um, she, she did return for the scan. Unfortunately, I do not have the results to hand. This was written in retrospect. I have had no contact with the patient. Hmm. What's it about? What's, what's the point? You know, yeah. for somebody to produce that bit of paper, that's taken some time. It, you know, it's like all the poli- you know, police keep complaining about the levels of paperwork that have to be done. Teachers complain about yeah. the amount of paperwork that have to be done. But what is all of this about? You know, because this has communicated absolutely nothing of any use to me yeah. at all, because the person there has said I wasn't there sort of i'm sorry i mean i don't need to know that so mm. when it come back to blooming paul sweeney now i appreciate he was just you know he'd probably got his two and a half minutes that everybody does to put complicated ideas forward about what's going on but i mean come on this is this the is the biggest question the organization of health boards or the fact that that you know, we're still getting paper appointments sent out. And if you can't make it, you have to phone somebody and they send another paper appointment out and you keep going until you get a date that you can actually do. I mean, are we in a digital world or aren't we? And why is it that the NHS is not operating in a digital way? I'm sure what they'll say is, yeah, that would be lovely if we had the money for had it. the money, yes. Um, that's yeah. very possible. But, you know, this this surely has got to be a big part of the discussion. Um, and I'm, I'm not if we're going to open this up, let's have a proper debate about what's going on in the NHS and what people feel would be better. You know, what would be the priorities to try to make sure you're not repeating things uh, a lot of the time and you're not spending your time doing endless paperwork? Or am I just over reflecting on a particular experience yeah. of mine that might have hee haw to do with the, you know, the average bear? I merely ask, and you're very welcome to to let us know uh, the, the 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 forms on the website. Um, obviously, it works because I get a lot of those emails. Uh, it's hello at leslieriddick.com. But if you go to the website, you'll see the place to email in. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, I was going back to. A man I can't I can't thole even looking at West Streeting. I just I I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. Uh, he went he made a trip to Singapore and uh, praised the communications and IT setup etc in Singapore and said this is the way we should we should go down. And it's just been mentioned to him that Singapore spends significantly more per capita in terms of its its health service than the UK does. And there's all sorts of other elements within it as well but well, actually about, the point mm-hmm. sorry just the no. point i was going to make as well was that actually when you come to if, if it is you know the it systems we're talking about then the go-to place is estonia i mean these are the digital kind of you know leaders of europe where um everything has been digitized to the extent that people basically just have a credit card 
and their ID card in their wallet. And there's nothing else because everything else is online. Um, and these guys have got one health agency, but beneath that, they have 18 regional kind of bits, you know, uh, to, to cover the, their entire country. Now, Estonia has 1.3 million people. So it's a quarter of the size of Scotland. Yeah. And it has the same as the current number of health boards. So I, I just don't know that this is where this has come from. But before everyone runs off and thinks, yeah, this is the thing we need to do to sort the NHS out. We just need to have fewer this and fewer that. Can we just have a proper thoroughgoing conversation about the whole yes. thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like social care. I mean, it, it needs to be a, a, an open, frank discussion that actually gets away and people can actually turn around and actually say, what is what is the reality? And do you know the big thing about it? Actually speaking directly with and listening to the people who work in the NHS and in social care at every level. Because I'll tell you what, they'll come up with solutions. They always do. We always do. And that's that's my frustration. And it. it's always top down reconstruction, which seems inevitably from having been involved in, in further education to result in many more people earning much more money at the upper echelons and far more work in paperwork that devolved down to people at, at the lower level. But that's me. That's me. That's my rant about that. But talking about again, see, I, talking that's, about you know, uh, that's true. The only thing is, if you have only worked in one you know, maybe this is beginning to argue against myself here, but in one health board area and you think it's just normal and there's no other way around it than to have to keep writing everything out longhand. Yeah. Until this lassie had been trained in a training hospital and those are not in Fife, actually. The training hospitals are Edinburgh and Nine Wells on our mm -hmm. bit of the coast. So in those training hospitals, it looks like it's been a bit more kit put in, a bit water. So she knew that there's a different way of working. And the, the difficulty is if we're all just going to slog along longhand and that's yeah. been normal, you can ask people how, what would improve their situation and, and they're not necessarily going to come up know. with digital yeah. as a solution. And yeah. let's face it, there's a lot of people that still regard digital as a bit blooming fancy, you know, <laughs> and a bit kind of, ooh, digital. Um, whereas it just means not doing the same thing 400 times. How can we be in a situation where we're almost, you know, in a world where AI will come in and produce both of us in this podcast. I write. <laughs> yes. Well. Uh, but, you know, we're all having to get our heads around the idea that there is an ability to kind of simulate ourselves completely in, in terms of technology. And we've still got people writing stuff longhand, you know. Anyway, right, I'll stop about it. No, 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 because I was, yes, I'm, yes, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm urging now. to get my link, you see. This is it, you see. This is the this is this desperate thing I'm trying to do when we're talking about IT systems. Mr. Bates versus the v the post office, which yeah. again it's it's a it's it's back to that 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 time when I don't know I remember Cathy come home vividly, and the impact that had in raising public awareness about homelessness and uh, what what could happen to to people who through no fault of their own or through circumstances lost their home and finished up on the streets and and the, the power of drama there and. This has been known. I mean, 1999, I think the the whole scandal started, if not beforehand, where uh, they brought in a new IT system, which um, 
which was flawed. It was flawed even apparently in the uh, the beta testing that they did, the, the the trials that they did. It was flawed there. And the presumption from the post office was that the money was missing because there were whatever way that the the computer system wasn't taking account of people buying lottery tickets or vehicle licensing, etc. It was all down to the fact that the post office seemed to employ a hell of a lot of people. I think nearly seven eight hundred of them who were actually thieves and who were systematically thieving from from the post office and the then the next aspect of it was that the whole system and the structure of the post office and that bureaucracy set in to turn around and say we are not making the mistake fujitsu who took over the running of it we are not making a mistake these people are thieving from you and that's 1999 to to now before the public has become aware, despite campaigns that have been run by, uh, by for example, people like Private Eye, but for tremendous investigation into the into into the scandal, and it just actually strikes me as just the power, the power of art, the power of film. But will it make in, in the long run? Will it make any difference? It may make a difference to the postmasters and mistresses who were imprisoned incorrectly and who have yet to receive compensation, which has been incredibly slow as. Many people know being involved in compensation processes with governments before have been incredibly slow. But does it actually say something about the structure of the society that we've developed, Leslie, in that a bureaucracy, um, state, state run, the post office, government controlled, operates on the basis of sustaining its own credibility and sustaining the positions of those who are involved rather than actually getting down and trying to analyse that there might actually something be wrong with the system and it's not the people. Yeah, and actually the bit that's that's stunning to me about it is Ed Davey, right? Yes. And I, I know, now to be fair to him, and they've, they've, they've had uh, your man on, Endless. I mean, he's he's such a patient character and so well played by Toby Jones. And the is that right, Toby Jones? Toby Jones. Yeah. Suddenly hesitating about his surname. Um, but you know, he he's such a patient, placid guy. I mean, God knows how he. I mean, I saw Kristen Guramarthy interviewing him yesterday, <clears throat> and Kristen was trying to sort of provoke a bit of a "I am so angry I could almost explode" sort of reaction from him, and eventually sort of confessed. You know, I am trying to kind of rake you up a bit, but by gum, were you ever well cast as Toby Jones? Because you are unflappable. And he is just, you know, the equanimity of the guy is really quite astonishing. But what, what strikes me, and, and he was actually asked, what about Ed Davey? I mean, there's something about the kind of, I don't know, you know, the sort of butter wouldn't melt in his mouthness yeah. of Ed Davey, that the fact he was, you know, in charge of the post office yep. and just... Okay, so he can now say, here's his tiny little fig leaf. Well, I did actually meet them months late and didn't sort it. So that's you. If you feel you can sleep at night with that, mate, just rock on. But I suppose the point is how many times people looked at this, the pro and it's just how you described it there. What are the probabilities that a whole rake yeah. of people in post offices who are probably the real gems of yeah. you know society in lots of respects what what's just the probability that they're all thieves you know to have 900 cases and there's more out there probably of really people thieving massive amounts of money tens of thousands of quid which you know and in sort of in in broad daylight you know like this was not going to be easily hidden if that's what they were doing what is just the probability of people doing that 
And if, if you were in any position of authority and if you're managing anything, it's like sometimes, OK, so all the information coming in is saying that this is true. But, uh, you, you know, you've got to stand back for a moment and say, really, what are the chances of this yeah. being true? Because, OK, that perhaps the, the thing that you've then got to assume is that the amount of hassle there would be from actually giving serious thought to the you know, to the reality, which is it's not possible. It's just not even probable at all to have 900 postmasters at it. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not possible. The minute you sort of accept that there's that's not possible and that you're getting a whole lot of people telling you that it's not possible that anything but that outcome was the explanation. You have a mega problem on your hands. Yeah. So what do you do? Nothing. Well, and that but, to me, yeah. that's the real thing that I would never forgive people like Ed Davey for. And all those folk, you took the money, you took the extra money for being a minister, you took the kudos, you took the Mondeo, you took the lot of it, and you're in government. You, you, you know, it's not like we've made you do this. Mm -hmm. You've stood for election and you want to govern this country. And when you, you're not a stupid man, so when you got something where basically your own common sense and just, you know, probability began to become too yeah. difficult to take seriously. You look the other way and just let this whole thing go on. And now you're blaming your civil servants and everyone that gave you wrong advice. Sure, that's all pretty depressing, too. Even a bigger problem, which we expected you to sort. Yeah. So it raises the question, what do ministers actually do? I mean, a point made by Keir Starmer about Rishi Sunak and his great claims for, you know, at least we've got inflation halved, is if if he wasn't taking responsibility when inflation doubled and trebled, I don't think you get to get any kind of yeah. claims for it when you have it. Well, this would be, what are you for? And it comes back to the sort of paper man, woman kind of argument. If you are not active in, and able and expecting to intervene in situations, if you're just there to preside over every you know, civil service, just continuing to do what it wants to just minimise trouble for itself, and we, you have to presume at the back of it, the tendering out of stuff to Fujitsu in the first place was there, you know, missives clearly around the place that that and it was Labour that started the ball rolling on much yeah. of this, that there was cross party consensus about the way that this public service was going to be run, basically using at its core a private system that had been written off and was too big to fail. So all of that sits behind this this thing. And it's the thing is, none of this is new. How many scandals have we got through yeah. where the financial crash, too big to fail. The banks were too big to fail. So we all look the other way. Regulation doesn't really work. Now we've got, you know, the, the com companies that were proven to be at it in different ways, going back into people's homes to install prepayment meters. Yeah. Because what, the, you know, it's more acceptable now in a way that it wasn't before and we trust them to do the right thing. Yeah. It, this, it's this kind of the, the, the method of doing stuff is to just assume that the whole privatization of a public realm can work well with watchdogs that, OK, they haven't really got much in the way of teeth and ministers who really can't be expected to keep up with the details. That's why you don't put um, a, a proper country, um, a governance system in the hands of the private sector in the first place, because Absolutely. this is inevitable, this kind of stuff. And you inevitably have 
uh, people who are sitting just holding, you know, they're, they're, it's like the kind of monarchs in the day of old. They're just sitting with their cloaks, with their king crowns, whilst behind the scenes, uh, the place is being run by other people. And then you get found out by things like this and well done uh, to, to Alan Bates. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I, one thing that struck me there. I, mean, I wasn't going to talk about it, but, uh, but I will, was the fact that he said standing back and not taking action and not intervening. Uh, because uh, I know I recommend films and I'm going to recommend One Life directed by James Hawes, uh, where Anthony Hopkins and Johnny Flynn star, uh, star as Nicholas Winton um, as an older man and Nicholas Winton as a young man in Prague after the uh, German invasion of the Sudetenland invention taking over of, of Czechoslovakia. And people may know this story, but it's about the kinder transport where Nicholas Winton, who was who went to Prague to go on a skiing holiday initially and met with a friend. And uh, Winton uh, came from a, an, an immigrant background, a Jewish family. He His family converted to the Church of England, but he himself was a self-declared agnostic, socialist and European. And this comes through very strongly in the film, where he saw what he saw was so appalled by the, the children and the situation uh, in, among the refugees that he decided to do something about it. And he and his mother, played by Helena Bonham Carter, Bobby Winton, and uh, Roma Ligari, plays Doreen Warner, Alex Sharp, Trevor Chadwick. These people, real people, actually put their lives on the line and at risk in order to rescue nearly 700 children from the Nazis, mainly Jewish children from the Nazis. And people may remember the That's Life episode um, where he he met the the children uh, that he mm, managed to get yeah. out but this was a man and it's what comes through in it and it's incredibly emotional two elements i was incredibly struck by the fact that we walked through the refugee camp there was a a little girl holding uh, a white bundle that was a dead baby and that white bundle just struck me the fact that there no i know it's a film but that white bundle was the white bundles had been seen from gaza and that's that's that that's that it's a lesson to be learned from that and what also struck me about it is about the good human the good human because he was haunted throughout his life nicholas winton by the fact that he couldn't save more children he couldn't save more and that's what struck with them and that's what the film is about it's a hard watch it really is i think it's very well done it's incredibly emotional and I advise people to go and see it. And I just hope that art there, if people go and see it, will initiate among people more feeling and more thought and more emotion about refugees everywhere and may focus the mind if it needs focused any more on what's going on in Gaza. But no, I recommend it. One life. Um, and we'll be uh, back to that subject of, <clears throat> of Gaza uh, I'm sure, kind of yeah. next week. Yeah. I should say just before, I just had a quick look to see what had, if anything, had happened with the the escalation of of uh, war, basically mm -hmm. across borders. Um, with with more strikes, is another strike now happening across the border into Israel by Hezbollah. But I noticed that three minutes ago, um, post office boss Paula Venels, the former post office oh, boss, yeah. has said she's handed back her CBA. So yep. uh, she's now saying, I'm truly sorry for the devastation caused. I mean, honest to God. Yeah, well, yeah. But, but it is an extraordinary thing. And it does, to me, this 
you know, there's I made mention of that other scandal about uh, the way that British Gas was basically going into people's mm-hmm. homes, disabled people, people with kids under two, you know, putting prepayment meters into places that would just essentially mean you were going to cut yourself off and freeze. And the the people who did the legwork on that were the Times newspaper. The people who did the, the legwork on the post office documentaries and drama was ITV that got that commissioned. Mm-hmm. And all I'm saying is, where is the BBC in this? Because we're paying a license fee to have things done in the public good that involve some digging, some planning, a lot of imagination. And, you know, that I'm seeing again with headlines here, the writer of the post office TV drama is astounded by the reaction to it. More than 100 people have contacted lawyers after the broadcast. So that's 100 more people caught up in the Horizon scandal who would have just given up if they hadn't seen something come into the public domain. Wakey, wakey, BBC, because, you know, you are there to educate, inform and entertain. And you're the piece of the public realm that we would expect to be doing something about this. So it's been... You know, there's a wake up call, I think, in a lot of respects for the things that are just making news right now. And Gaza, my God, you know, what can we do? I mean, short of continuing to turn up and demonstrate, Mm -hmm. you know, we need some leadership. And actually, it may well again fall to um, Hamza Youssef because he's the only one in the UK who's actually had, who's been on the right side of this and ahead of the, well, I wouldn't even say the game. It's not a game. No. But who has just been timely. So it's time for something else. Um, And even if that is just to direct our efforts towards, if it was a Scottish government-led event, it would be powerful. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been all the different events that have been put on by different pressure groups. But if the Scottish government, if the Scottish Parliament is of one mind, then come on. Yeah. Well, how powerful would that be to have a Scottish Parliament-led rally in Edinburgh in support of Gaza or Glasgow? Yeah. You know, we need to think of these things. Well, that's our first episode of 2024 done. And uh, we've moved out the, the Christmas season, I think, thoroughly now. The Feast of the Epiphany has gone. The lights are down, which is always a, a sadness for me because I, I quite enjoy all these big displays. I mean, I'm... I, my my taste is very low in these matters. I just love all the, the bright lights. And I've now gone back to my, my normal breakfast of cereal without adding the mince pie and a large chunk of Toblerone <laughs> to it. Oh, no, 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 no. You've got to have a oh, chunky Toblerone. That's the... Because see the, where Rishi Sunak got his inspiration for oh the maple God, syrup yeah. on the spaghetti. Yeah, well, oh, a chunk, chunk of Toblerone is brilliant. Um, but yes, and on that dubious Sorry, Pat, can we just put a wee plug in about the Denmark film? Can I just turn around and say, folks, I had written this down. I actually, (laughs) I communicated it with Leslie, talking about communication. I communicated digitally. I even typed it out and it's sitting in front of me. Denmark film, Friday. Right, on you go, Leslie. Sorry. Well, yeah, just to say that um, because it's been quite an effort to kind of get get the the film um, into actually cheerfully about 18 um, different places across Scotland. If you want to come to the films, I mean, some of them have actually sold out, which is brilliant. Um, but if you go to the, the website that the podcast's on, lesliereddick.com, and then forward slash events, 
you can see the details of the 18 different places. This Friday is uh, Dundee in the Steps uh, Cinema. And there's only about 30 seats left in that, actually. So, you know, it's a 200 and something seater cinema. So that's great. Um, then on Sunday, it's Balach. And there's a church there whose name I cannot remember, except locally it's known as the White Church. But again, have a look. And after that, all over the place. And happily, the cameo in Edinburgh have now got a date. It's late March. But, I mean, it's good that there's now something in Edinburgh. Yeah. Big, big old cinema there. So that's quite a space to fill. Uh, so come on, people. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's a good way to sort of get that other bit of your brain going. The visualising how things could be is just much more easily done when you're concentrating a bit on a country with a striking number of parallels with Scotland that's just gone in a different direction. So, um, you know, it'll be a good, good get together. So please come along. Thanks. <laughs> and I'd only mention of steps, which I like, which is not the rather dubious pop group, at the Steps Theatre in Dundee. We hope to see you next week, Jobs.